And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, Latika Book and Tina Fordham, a powerhouse of voices, here to take a look at the weekend's papers. Latika, what have you spotted? Emma, I'm intrigued by this idea from the French government that people should think twice before splurging at the sales before Christmas. Thank you very much for that. How about you? What have you spotted, Tina? Well, the usual suspects uh, for me looking at geopolitics, but um, I'm quite interested in the idea that Christmas is starting earlier and lasting longer and wondering if it's the antidote we need to a very grim year in geopolitics. A bit of buble has already made it to our pay- playlist. We've uh, also got Tyler Brule, our editorial director, on the line from Tokyo, and we'll hear from Sophie Grove, editor of our sister magazine, Confect, about the latest issue. It's the 26th of November, 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. So, very good morning to you from an extremely cold London. Tina Fordham still got her coat on, ladies and gentlemen. How are you doing? <laughs> Welcome to our studio, which is wintry. Brilliant to be here. Delighted to have you. How about you, Latika? You look resplendent and ready for another bar class. I am almost ready for another bar class, but Emma, I've got a delightful hour of chatting to you ahead of me. I came back from Australia a week ago, so it's been a bit of a culture shock to feel how very suddenly cold the weather is this week. And phenomenally Christmassy. Very Christmassy, but I quite like that. Yeah, I London's must say that the last three months of the year are quite pleasant to be in London for it me. It is quite fun. It is. Yeah. The, London does it like no one else. It's, it, but it, particularly it's gone full baubles. It really has gone bananas. <laughs> it's absolutely. Let's find out what's happening in Tokyo because our, our editorial director, Tyler Brule, is there for us. A very good afternoon to you. It's good evening, isn't it, Tyler? It is good evening and good, good morning to you, uh, Emma. It is actually very chilly here um, as well. It's probably about uh, six or seven degrees, uh, dark in Tokyo already. Um, but I just came back from lovely Okinawa where it was 25 degrees and positively tropical. And you did, and then you had a rebellious dip in the sea. I had a rebellious dip in the sea. The one thing that always sort of astounds me about Japan is... This, this sort of odd relationship the country has with the sea and the seasons and that, you know, you only go in the sea from sort of July. You have to be out of the sea by the end of August. And, uh, yes, I had a run-in at the hotel with um, one of the, the gentlemen who's sort of in charge of just basically just keeping people out of the water. But it's okay to go in the sea if you want to go snorkeling and if you want to put a wetsuit on and go scuba diving or you want to go stand up paddling. But if you want to go swimming, that's the problem. Um, so anyway, he, he had sort of trouble explaining why I couldn't go in the sea, but I grabbed the towel anyway and, and, uh, and jumped in. I'm still here to talk about it. I was about to say, what, what happened next? Because in your column you mentioned I just went, and went for a dip and then everybody really wants to know, did you then get into tons of trouble and someone fish you out or did you just swim, swim away? <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, there was, I, I sort of just walked further down the beach and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, jumped in and, um, and, and made my way back and, uh, and deposited my, my towel very nicely and no, no one said a word. Yeah, you have, to, you have to sort of behave yourself in Okinawa because there's a pretty hefty military presence there, isn't there? There is, but you know, I thought actually, if this is for, you know maybe one for Tina from a geopolitical point of view. The many times I've been to Okinawa, you just you cannot go down the motorway or anywhere without seeing you know, all kinds of military vehicles and having choppers overhead and and fighters being scrambled and uh, airborne early warning aircraft uh, buzzing overhead. Thanksgiving weekend. Absolutely not an aircraft in sight, no military vehicles. So um, it's, I was sort of thinking if someone's going to spring an attack, pick Thanksgiving weekend. Sina, have you written that down to give warnings to everybody else? Tyler, that's an alarming thing to say. <laughs> 
it, 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 was, it was remarkable because this is what probably one of the most toothsome, uh, you know, U.S. Um, probably deployments, I guess, in the world, or certainly, certainly in, in the Pacific. And, um, and and that is amazing when you go around the island, you see how much of the island is Camp One thing or, or, or the other, and two Air Force bases plus a Japanese Air Force base as well. It is it is remarkable. Yet there was no hint of it, um, other than of course seeing U.S. service families wandering around the mall on Thanksgiving, um, you know, look, looking for something other than turkey. And what happens to the Japanese uh, residents? of Okinawa. Well, the Japanese residents of Okinawa, of course, as we know, there is a, there's, there's been quite a, a difficult relationship, a long-standing difficult relationship, uh, you know, certainly with local residents uh, and, and the fact that you have one Air Force base, uh, which, uh, Futenma Air Force Base, which you know, it, they, people sort of liken it to if you had a runway um, maybe down the middle of Hyde Park or something. <laughs> It's right in the middle of the city of, of Naha, uh, or just a little bit to the north of the city of Naha. But, uh, of course, you then have various marine aircraft uh, screeching overhead um, in, in a very, very uh, urban setting. Not to mention, of course, there have been you know various run-ins, assaults, all kinds of things which have happened over the years. So a complicated relationship. But you know, people in, in Okinawa and our, our Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief, she just did a story recently. We actually named it um, our top small city in the world to call home. You know, the amazing thing we've been chronicling probably for the last decade, Emma, is the amount of people who've, who want to maybe check out of daily life in Nagoya or Fukuoka or Tokyo. Um, they want to have a bit of an, an easier pace. They want to live with tropical breezes. They want to maybe... Yeah, you know, maybe you sort of had your time working for Dentsu and just want to open a nice wine bar. Take it easy, go surfing, um, whatever whatever it may be. Um, and that is a, that's what the great thing about about Okinawa. There's a sense of people sort of reinventing themselves um, and and having a very easy life. And of course, it is remarkable. I was at a Sunday market, um, no, pardon me, a Saturday market uh, yesterday, um, and just seeing all of these. You know, men and women who are definitely pushing past 100, outselling vegetables, etc. So, of course, you know, if you want to lead a long life, Okinawa, of course, is probably one of the top places to go in the world. Especially if you like military plane spotting. Tina, you wanted to say something. Well, yes. I mean, sorry to bring it back to geopolitics, but um, Tyler, I was in I was in Tokyo last week, actually, um, talking about geopolitics with investors. And first of all, the Japanese were much more talkative than I ever remember them being. And of course, they were very focused on US-China tensions, South China Sea. And one of the things that came up privately was Japanese are concerned that in the event of, of an increase in hostilities, that Okinawa would be used as a, as a staging ground. Does, does, does that not really some, uh, come up in conversation? Are people not concerned about this sort of um, global risk temperature? Well, I, I think that certainly, I think people in Okinawa know they're, they're going to be the first ones to to get whacked just because of the uh, certainly the the sheer U.S. presence uh, there, and and you you get, um, of course, you you have this this feeling. Even even last week, I was um, I was talking to a hotel manager and said that um, when North Korea sent up one of their their rockets, which of course flew over Japan, they said alerts go off. I mean, you get something that resembles sort of an air raid, but they said there's not a lot of instruction as to what you're supposed to do. I, I don't know whether you're just supposed to, you know, run for some type of cover, but it's not like Switzerland where you have you know, a proper culture of bunkers. Uh, this hotel GM was just saying it, it is rather odd. It's like take shelter, but, you know, okay, if this uh, device from North Korea lands, you're not really supposed to figure out what the, what's supposed to happen after that. I suppose if you're over 100A 
you've seen things happen before and B, you can't get to a bunker at, at a top sprint, can you? <laughs> in, indeed. But I have to say that the, the, uh, the, um, the, those that are 100 years plus um, in, in Okinawa, or at least that look 100 years plus, are, um, are a pretty spry bunch, actually. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, what's, so um, talk to me about um, Tokyo Television. Um, it's always a, a, a perpetual source of joy for you, isn't it? It is. I mean, the, the, everything from female wrestling on a Sunday, Sunday morning, um, which, is, which is always interesting. But I think the, the remarkable thing right now is the change of seasons in, in Japan. Uh, we're in, I would say, you know, probably the... the week of, uh, you know, orange, uh, you know, orange and then yellow and, uh, and sort of dark brown trees. And, and so you, you know, when you watch any number of the, the Japanese morning shows, a full half hour is devoted to what trains you can take, uh, where you can go next weekend in terms of, uh, you know, having the best possible view of autumn's turning leaves. Um, not to mention what you might want to wear, um, if it's going to be a little bit, you know, chillier up in Kanazawa. The weather people actually give you sort of a, a full sort of rundown, you know, should you be wearing a gilet, should you be wearing maybe... Um, you know, a, a sort of a longer duffel coat next weekend. And it's, it's remarkable uh, to see how much emphasis is put into, uh, you know, really sort of not just decoding, but explaining uh, the power of the season. Of course, that is very much what Japan is always about, because also you get the same type of thing during Sakura season as well. Where, where is the best place as, as the course, the Sakura start to change from south to north, you know, where is the best place to go and see them? Not to mention, of course, already ski reports have started because, it's already sort of uh, you know, dumping snow up in Niseko as well. What kind of autumn has Japan had? I know here in, in, in the United Kingdom, um, tree experts, I was speaking to a tree expert last week, and he said that the United Kingdom has had one of the most beautiful autumns in history because we haven't had a big storm to knock all the trees leaves off. And as a result, anybody who's been for a walk in, in Hyde Park in the last couple of days will have seen a, an entire swathe of ground just totally bathed in gold. It has been one of the most beautiful autumns ever. And is, is Japan having a particularly good season this year as well? Well, I'm no sort of meteorological, <laughs> meteorological expert, <laughs> but um, it, has been, it has been quite warm, though. So up until last week, um, the, you know, it was 23, 24 degrees in Tokyo. Uh, it, it, it is rather chilly today, um, but it does go up, um, I think, back to sort of, you know, 22 degrees um, again um, on Wednesday, just in time for our Tokyo Christmas party um, as, as well. But I was just going to say, I, you know, I, I recall sort of a series of rather dramatic storms over the last few weeks in the UK, um, and and you know, part of the country getting blown sideways. So I'm not really sure about you know no windstorms in the UK. But anyway, I, I don't want I don't want to argue. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going to argue with a man who did trees for a living, uh, but but it's it's in our pockets of southeast England, it's pretty decent. I mean, whatever's happened in Scotland is is happening in Scotland, and we'll we'll wish them the very very best of luck for it. Um, tell me about small cars, because I know you like a small car. A, a well-formed small car. No, I just I, I was thinking when we when we look at you know, various uh, legislation, uh, transport policy, etc. Um, of course, you know the, the move to having e everything. Um, of course, yeah, I know that we're we'll, there's, we're going to be talking a little bit about also uh, the, the French moves, at least by one ministry, to get people to stop buying cheap clothes on Black Friday. Of course, we've also seen uh, Mayor Hidalgo in Paris, uh, you know, declaring a bit of a war. 
uh, on on SUVs um, as as well. And it's just sort of made me sort of pause. When you're in Japan and you see all of these cute Daihatsus and Suzukis and Mazdas, Subarus, I mean, you know, of course, you have this K-car category where there are tax incentives. Uh, of course, it has to do with motor size, it has to do with scale of vehicle as well. And I sort of look at our, you know, our streets. I look at um, you know, all of the policy measures when we're thinking about curbing, you know, our vehicle use. But also there is a whole issue of scale as well. And you know, why in the likes of, of even Italy, where you have the power of Fiat? And but you know, if you look at sort of a Fiat Panda, Fiat Panda looks like a beast beside most Daihatsus or Suzukis. You know, most European cars, no matter how compact they may be. Um, you know, look like, you know, almost like, you know, monsters in, in, in comparison. So um, I was thinking there, there is an opportunity for, for perhaps um, Japan Incorporated in tandem, I think, with European policymakers as well to say, you know, why don't we look at actually bringing down motor size, bringing down vehicle size, and actually making cars match the urban environment a little bit more than they currently do. I don't know how to quite ask this question without, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit stuck on this one, because often a car is seen as... A, a projection of I a per- do you, you know what I'm trying to say here? <laughs> so, you're looking we've, for got, we've, yes. got a, we've got a, we've got a room full of women here, Tyler. So everybody's <laughs> we're all feeling slightly sort of well. There's a smile being being drawn here. Can you be an alpha male in a tiny Daihatsu? You can. I mean, listen. You you can even you can even do it and look incredibly butch in a Suzuki a Suzuki Hustler. I mean, who who doesn't want to drive a Suzuki Hustler? Only getting to the important important issues. As lessons in in alpha masculinity in tiny cars. Um, Tyler, will you be driving a tiny car next week in uh, in Zurich for the Christmas market, or is it or is it back to to big beasts in Switzerland? <laughs> no, uh, well, I, no beast in Switzerland. I have to say, actually, no, no cars at least allowed at uh, Dufourstrasse next week because this goes back to urban policy. Um, there, there's been a bit of a ban by the Zurich city authorities on us having um, market stalls out in front of um, our, our space at Dufourstrasse 90. So this means that next week um, we're clearing out the garage. So there's a garage underneath uh, the office, which is probably good for about 10 cars. So we spoke to our landlords and we said, can Santa and the whole Christmas brigade go underground this year? So um, as you know, there's a, sort of, there's a very nice ramp that goes down. That's all going to be you know, beautifully you know, temporarily landscaped with trees, also with stalls, because then it's on our property. Um, and then uh, Christmas is going to literally happen um, in a bunker, because I think you've been down that basement, and you have, you have seen the one-meter-thick uh, steel and concrete doors uh, that are down there. So anyway, listen, if things go astray in North Korea, everyone's going to be safe at Dufourstrasse next week for the Christmas market. Absolutely. I mean, you're right. I have been downstairs, and, and bunker is an incredibly accurate way of describing the space which you're going to t- transform into Christmas. So everything could happen above ground, and yet there'll be endless supplies of glue vine and excellent gloves. Indeed, and uh, and of course, uh, you know, very safe monocle uh, readers and and editors as well. And I'll be looking forward to seeing you, of course, uh, the week after because it'll be Christmas market in full swing two weeks from now. Indeed, and we'll be allowed outside, won't we? We, we will. I'm not, I've never, I'm not, I don't think I've even been down at the basement of Midori House. I know there's not a bunker, that's for sure. <laughs> Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Tokyo. That was our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Uh, on the line from Japan, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Well, that was a, a marvellous tour of what's happening in Tokyo. I mean, th- this idea of tiny cars.
is is charming. This but- was a big shock to me when I moved to Europe, actually, because cars in Australia are much bigger, and it is a bit of a projection, to use your word, Emma. Um, there's kind of a couple of questions you get asked in Australia, which is a bit of a reflection of Australian society. You know, where do you live? What car do you drive? Now, of course, when I moved to London, the idea of asking that is completely redundant because I haven't driven a car for eight years. Um, So it it was a bit of a shock to me to see actually how little most people care about what sort of car they drive, the size of it, how much it guzzles in terms of fuel. And now, of course, we're all moving to EVs. So I don't have a car. I never have in 21 years in London. Well, in in previous lives in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, But 21 years in London, never owned a car. It's all gone a bit green now. So there's a sort of, around where we live, there's a a bit of a clamour for plug-in points and that's actually quite good fun to watch if you if you take a slightly wry view of of driving uh, which is you have nowadays the new generation of the big boy cars the Porsches the big Mm. Mercedes the big this that and the other but instead of like heading over to the to the garage and getting the nozzle out and being all you know filling up your tank you effectively have to plug it in and it's really funny to watch these again alpha males charging out (laughs) of their um, big cars and then struggling with what effectively is a massive plug and a massive plug point and it's it's not a delicate nor is it a, a sort of incredibly easy thing to do and so you, you suddenly sort of feel as if these these often guys are slightly being knocked down a peg or two because they're basically it's the equivalent of putting in the hoover <laughs> it's quite. It's not a very edifying. It's thing not to do. revving up the engine. It's, is there's it? no room. But yeah. the the revving of the engine is a really dangerous thing now because there's a there's someone down our road has got one of those Porsches which are phenomenal. But they, and they can go to naught to sixty in nothing. But they do it silently, and you literally have to jump out of the way, and you haven't got long because once they get going, you can't hear them coming. And then, but you can, boy, oh, boy, could you feel them if if they hit you? First world problems, massive first world problems. We walk, we sometimes walk down the street and go, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to have a lovely big car like that? And my husband turns around and says, look at our terrible car; it does the same thing. Yeah, stop worrying about it; it does the same thing. But yeah, I I find it quite strange if people talk about cars nowadays in London. People just say, oh, you have a car, and then that's it; it's finished. Everyone talks about public transport. Yeah, which mostly is. The, the topic of which is it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> How's Christmas for you, um, everybody? We, we've got um, Tyler was talking about the Christmas market in a bunker uh, underneath Dufourstrasse 90 next week in Zurich, and then everything decamps here to London. We will have Father Christmas. He's coming from Rovaniemi. We've got the reindeer. We've got the glue vine. We've got the raclette. This is a well-oiled machine. I, I'm completely sold. I love European Christmas. Uh, as an American in London, of course, we had Thanksgiving this week at home and after Thanksgiving you know it's full you know full bore ahead on on Christmas although I do wait until the first Sunday in Advent to to put the decorations up so I've introduced a little bit of Northern European discipline into the whole process. This is interesting because before we came on air ladies and gentlemen we were talking a little bit about you know when when you press the start button and we've got a tiny bit of Christmas music 
sort of creeping into our playlist here at Monocle. And that felt a little bit early, but it's quite kind of nice now that it's come because London's gone full Christmas already. Um, but you you have quite a structured, uh, dare I say, you, you follow the religious calendar other than the, the rest of us who are just going, well, does it I, feel right now? Should we I, have, should I'm we not get sure I you know, follow any kind of religious dictates in any other respect, but I do like the idea of... Uh, you know, following some some sort of parameters, and it's the the first Sunday of Advent through to Twelfth Night, um, which is uh, Epiphany, and and that is a mixture of the Northern European and the Southern European traditions. Where in Italy and Spain and Portugal, where my family comes from, um, you get your presents actually on on Epiphany on January sixth. Wow. That is so long to wait. But it also means you could take advantage of the sales (laughs) if you were being a thrifty sort. How about Christmas with you, the run-up to Christmas and the the structures around it? Well, I'm not a Grinch, but I must say Christmas passes me by with less and less interest each year, I must say, as I get older. Um, I grew up as one of eight children, and my father was one of, I think, nine or ten children. So Christmas was this huge affair where we would go to our grandparents, and I literally had like 60 cousins. And for the first kind of ten years of my life, each aunt and uncle would give you presents. So it was a massive kind of haul thing. No secret Santa. No, we didn't have... We had Santa, but not secret Santa. Um, and then that kind of gradually tapered away as I think the cost of living really bit people and people went, hang on, why are we giving all these presents to kids we see once a year barely? So Christmas is not a huge thing for me. And, and as an adult, I do find this enormous kind of pressure in the lead up to Christmas because suddenly it's a crunch point where you have a clear deadline of how many things you need to get resolved before the end of the year. And in Australia, it's really the end of the year. The summer holidays kicks in the week before Christmas and then you take six weeks off. So for me, it's so wrong. No, no, it's so (laughs) right. Because the thing I do not understand about the British is you have huge yeah, you have a lot of work to do over Christmas in that one week. You're traveling, you've got lunches to put on for huge groups, you've got presents to do. And then you go straight back to work and everyone is miserable. And I do not understand why you don't just take a little bit more time off. Enjoy I'm, the fun before. This I'm, is what I'm doing now. I'm learning the, to, the run to up do to this Christmas bit now. Christmas is the fun. Yeah. It's the preparation. I mean, for, for us... Me and my kids, Christmas is about the food, and my youngest and I start plotting out recipes. We have a wish list of things we're going to bake. I just bought what's on the wish extra list? freezer. What's wrong? Yeah, what's happening on the Fordham Christmas table? Well, we've in- incorporated because I, I mean, I really, I'm, I'm starting to sound obsessive. I realize we've we've <laughs> integrated a lot of other people's holidays. I mean, we also celebrate Cinco de Mayo in our house, the Mexican Independence Day, because we just like eating so much, and um, and Chinese New Year. But there is something. I think it's Icelandic. It's definitely Nordic. The Little Christmas Eve, which is the 23rd. So we also celebrate Little Christmas. Eve when you're given a book and some chocolate and you you know you spend that evening reading and eating chocolate which is I actually think is is maybe the perfect you don't need to holiday. be Icelandic to do that every day Tina <laughs> well we we've adopted their tradition as well um, you know and and Boxing Day and and as I said uh, Epiphany King's this Day is, this is suddenly the total upside to being a geopolitical expert you know when the fun is yes. 
And it's everybody's holidays. I mean, Diwali, Hanukkah, bring it on. I, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't, how do you say, co-opt <laughs> their holidays. But if I was invited, I would be right there. We're up for it. OK, the Fordham household is where we're going this, well, for, for the for, for the From the 23rd on. Because there's generally a party every week. Every day. Yes. Well, I did invite you for the karaoke. So, yes. OK, karaoke is when? Uh, that's uh, Christmas afternoon, Christmas Day in the afternoon. I think we can do that. I'm well up for that. Right, OK, we've got six minutes. Have a quick look at what's happening in the papers um, before we are going to uh, cross to Sophie Grove, the editor of Confect, to find out what's in her magazine this 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 uh, this season. Um, Tina, what have you, what have you spotted? I think let's have a look, first of all, at, at um, the last few days and the way that um, Hamas and Israel have sort of behaved you know behaved themselves the way they have behaved it has rather surprised a lot of us hasn't it that people have kind of stuck to what needed to be done yes and it really speaks to the the idea that um you can't really map out the pathways that peace or conflict take and so one question that's being asked now is we've had two successive days of uh, prisoner exchanges, hostages released and, and Palestinian prisoners returned, is that it, it feels uh, wrong for Israel to resume its um, anti-Hamas military attacks because uh, it's not quite peace, but a cessation of hostilities and bringing in fuel and you know witnessing the scale of the devastation. How much is enough? Um, and can you ever really defeat a non-state actor like Hamas in a in a military campaign um we you know we learned from ISIS uh and others that the answer is no but is the Israeli government and are the Israeli people prepared be- to basically not finish the job in military terms um this is I'm going to sneeze I do apologize I'm going to I'll try not to sneeze as I'm Excuse me, speaking. Um, I've never sneezed on air before in 12 years on Monocle. Um, Letika, <laughs> I mean, this, this, thank you very much indeed. This has now been um, borne out in coverage in the, in the papers this weekend, hasn't it, Letika? Because just looking at the New York Times, its headline is Israel faces decision on what to do after end of truce. And the Times here in the United Kingdom, there's an op-ed from Michael Clark, a visiting professor at King's College London, saying the longer the ceasefire lasts, the greater will be the pressure on the Israeli war cabinet to keep the hostage exchanges going. This is a welcome breath that's being taken by both sides. Nobody wants the resumption of hostilities to take to take place. And Michael Clark's going as far as saying after 50 days, Israel has now lost control of this war because no one wants it to start again. I think it's probably a little too early to say they've lost complete control. I think it is absolutely right to say they don't have the bulk of the world on side with them, say, in the way that Ukraine certainly does. Um, But I think that's also slightly irrelevant because really the people that Israel needs to keep on side is the United States. And so for as long as the Biden administration is supporting Israel's aims, and that does, of course, have a finite time frame to it, I think Israel can say, well, we're thinking about doing X, Y, Z. And and you will have seen this IDF this morning actually saying to Gazans, it's critical you don't move here, it's critical you don't move into the sea, it's critical you don't do this. Now, obviously, 
they are saying that because of military consequences if people do stray into areas. So I'm not entirely sure they can't resume military operations. I think the window for US support is certainly beginning to shut because this is affecting Biden's own ratings in the US. So that's a problem. And that domestic pressure will ultimately come to bear on what Israel can achieve. And do we think that Israel, I mean, what do we think will happen in two days time? Because, I mean, the IDF has said, I think it's a defence um, minister in Israel has said that the next time the negotiations take place, it will be under bombs. So that, you know, Israel is laying out its all very, very clearly. But as Latika said, the rest of the world is watching here and the rest of the world is relieved and not, dare I say, it, delighted to see that the, the, prison, the prisoner exchange and the hostage release seems to be going. And and that's that narrative of children being reunited with their parents and wives. It's very powerful. It's incredibly It's an irresistible narrative. And let's not forget the Israeli public, which wants the hostages to come home. So the the war cabinet in Israel is under immense pressure to keep this going as long as possible. We have the Qataris involved in the negotiations. Um, I I would suspect that as long as the momentum is there, uh, the emphasis will be to, to return as many hostages as possible. It does underscore how this war has captivated global public opinion um, in a way that uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict hasn't. And I mentioned last time on the program that 11,000 Ukrainian children are reported to have been kidnapped and taken back to Russia. Um, there's no sort of, no move, no global movement to, you know, to, to bring them home. Um, uh, resolving this conflict, toning down the, the risk of, of wider regional escalation, is something that all global leaders um, share, um, uh, have a common interest in. <laughs> we have, and they have been successful in to date. You know, let's not forget that when this began, the immediate fear and why you saw so many leaders rushing to the region was because they thought by now we could be in a full-scale region with Iran conflict. involved, exactly, yes. and Hezbollah, and yes. we have not had that happen. And that is a credit to statecraft, I think, and it's a credit to Qatar as well for for being able to sort of manage and balance this. Well, and U.S. diplomacy, but guess who hasn't been involved? China. Remember that. China was kind of testing the waters earlier this year for a diplomatic role in the Middle East, took, you know, took credit for uh, helping to normalize relations between Saudi and Iran, and China has really been nowhere to be found um, on this Russia? conflict. Uh, well, well, Putin's r- r- just started making his most anti-Israel comments yet, which is quite an interesting dynamic because some of the early criticisms of Israel during the Russia-Ukraine war was that Israel was not supporting Ukraine where people might have expected it to. Now, of course, Israel has its own relationship to manage about uh, Syria with Russia. So there was some understanding, I think, given to the Israeli position. I'm going to be very interested to see how Israel recalibrates on the Russia-Ukraine war after this. It's an interesting thing talking about the rest of the, the rest of the because the BRICS group had a summit this week, didn't they? Mm. The, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, and all they were saying is, you know, the, the fact is that they have divergent um, positions, and there is um, there is a reluctance of a large swathe of the world to follow in step behind Israel. But it does. The fact is that we haven't really had much coverage of what the BRICS have been saying about this conflict. So one wonders somehow whether that voice, how relevant that voice is at the moment. Because there's no common position. That's why we're not hearing much about it. Um, and it, it, We're still at a stage 
in the aftermath of Russia-Ukraine and now the Middle East conflict where there's a great reluctance to take sides and no one is forcing them to, right? It's not like the Iraq war and George W. Bush saying you're either with for, with us or, you know, you're against us. Um, India has been able to, you know, sort of maintain its optionality and you only have a couple of countries like maybe South Africa willing to openly side with, with Russia or to come out and, and take a position. There's just not re- much upside. Just recap on what the Australian, what Australia has said about this. About Israel? Yeah. Complicated. Well, yeah, a little. If it was a Facebook status, it would be I'm in the relationship, but secretly it's a little complicated. It's a left-wing government and the foreign minister and the prime minister are from the left faction now. They try and govern as though they're from the right. And this is really stressing uh, and, and straining the government's position because... Uh, the Australian position is we will lock in behind whatever the US does. That's really what it looks like on paper. But just last week, we had the foreign minister saying, well, we'd like to see Israel start working on steps towards a ceasefire, which is a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We actually support a ceasefire. And of course, that is not the stated position of the United States, which says that a ceasefire would enable Hamas to regroup and launch more deadly attacks on Israel. So it is a a tremendous problem. There's been a lot of uh, anti-Semitic violence uh, seen in Australia, and that's also been a real stress test on the government. And we have not really seen the government come out and condemn uh, as wholeheartedly as some people might have expected and as swiftly as some people might have hoped those anti-Semitic incidents that have occurred in Australia. So just like we're seeing in in uh, Europe and, of course, as well in the United States, this is putting a lot of pressure on the government domestically. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm joined in the studio by Latika Burke and Tina Fordham. Uh, the time is 9.33 here in London. Uh, let's have some... Well, let's find out what's in the latest edition of Confect, our sister magazine. It's just hit the newsstands with its winter edition. I'm delighted to say its editor, Sophie Grove, joins me on the line. A very good morning to you, Sophie. Good morning, Emma. How are you? Very well, thank you. And um, very much looking forward to diving into the pages of a magazine that seems absolutely full of beautiful, cosy clothes. Elegant, too. Exactly. I mean, there really are some beautiful things in in this issue. I mean, we've got a sort of celebration of the season in some ways. Um, You know, we're in Dresden making stolen with in Brittany with some spice dealers. There are snowy interiors and, as you say, beautiful clothes for the season. Um, It's a jewellery special, so it also sparkles. (laughs) Um, So we did a beautiful shoot in Paris um, with high jewellery and there's just a really wonderful also theme of this kind of idea of collecting and, um, you know, buying jewellery, you know, emotional sort of beautiful sculptural pieces that just peppered throughout the issue. Absolutely. What are the highlights for you? I'm just looking at one at one page. Um, I want to live inside um, the magazine. Yes, Tina Fordham is here and so she's decided <laughs> yeah, to I, live I inside just, the magazine. I, how can we have the, 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 the confect kind of like a weekend in, inside the magazine experience? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you want to dive in. I mean, I think it's wonderful the way confect sort of, you know, these wonderful characters gravitate towards the magazine. There are some real eccentric, wonderful hosts in there. But one of the best stories, I think, is an amazing hatter in Berlin. She's Persian. Um, 
Canadian, in fact, and she is just the most wonderful eccentric, Mariam Kiani. Um, she recommends wearing two hats at once as a style tip, in fact. Um, but her hats are just very sort of surreal and sort of da-da and amazing, but also tactile and beautiful and have a real sense of the occasion. Um, you know, this idea of she is such a great host and you can see that in her apartment in Berlin, you know, it's filled with this wonderful festive um, sort of kind of wild moments and you get a sense of her from the piece very much. Much, um, not least from the phenomenal photography of, of hats, which we sort of half sum up a little bit about what Confect is, which is that, you know, the concept of delight that might not be wholly practical, dare I say. <laughs> well, maybe not, but there are lots of practical, beautiful um, looks in there for the season. And definitely as our, our fashion editor in Paris has done an amazing job and just making sure that there's, you know, there's moments for snuggling in, but stepping out. And there's a lot of uh, beautiful gifts and, uh, you know, and we've, you know, from toys to, you know, of wonderful gardening implements so it's it's really a wonderful place to to kind of dive into and set the theme for, for winter but we've i mean there's a great piece also where we're in nepal in the foothills of everest um you know, with these amazing weavers and um you know creating blankets but also this great sense of this wonderful guest house where people are um sort of gravitate wonderful <laughs> quite mad sort of gang of german german and also sherpa um hosts have created this amazing place so i think we feel like we're sort of in the alps but also sort of in 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 you know striking out a little bit in this issue. So when when you were sitting down to plan the winter edition of of Confect, how did what was the overriding feeling that you wanted to give us? I mean we 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 are literally wishing to dive into the pages here because we, we you, as as Tina says it's a it's a it's a publication that we that you wish to inhabit. Well that's nice to hear. I mean I think we really want to have that sense. I mean, for me, this time of year is about hosting and it is about bringing people in. So they're beautiful recipes. We want to really set people up to feel inspired by winter and, you know, to bring beautiful, natural um the natural world into their lives. We've got this wonderful piece on um, wreath weaving in in, in Cologne, um, and another piece on Lithuanian um, sort of himmelis, which are sort of decorations made out of straw. But it's a very sort of almost like origami, a folk tradition which is being revived in that part of the world. So we want to give our take on the season is to really engage and celebrate. Um, these dark days bring light into the house and also you're, you know, have confidence to just be uh, the, the host that you really are to kind of just get your friends around and um, you know, bring you know wonderful bits of um, foliage from the garden and just be a bit expressive in your idea of winter it celebration. Is, it is that wonderful moment when you head out into the garden with a pair of scissors. And, and you just think, right, what what can I bring back that's, that's fabulous? Now, I know that um, I, I like to collect the occasional pine cone and then I lose them around the house and then I want to put them all together at Christmas and then I just spend the rest of the year finding pine cones in July. Um, you, I, I gather, are slightly more together when it comes to the gathering of, of pine cones from, from good locations. <laughs> well, I have actually had many a Norfolk walk um, where I've been sort of grabbing these beautiful, huge pine cones and um, 
squirreling them away for this time of year so I can make my wreaths and and kind of deck deck the halls of of my corner of Hackney in London. <laughs> uh, but I think there's a really wonderful moment. I mean, it feels like you know, this time of year, we need that light. We need those beautiful candles and those moments around the table and in front of the fire, um, you know, with the champagne popping. And it just brings joy to this moment. So I think... Um, I'd encourage everybody to, to do that and, and dive into Confect for inspiration. Um, Latika, listening to that, I mean, let, Sophie, we need to place in slightly in context. I think Latika, at the beginning of this, this programme, was saying, I'm not being bar hungba, but I'm feeling Christmas less and less. Um, so, Latika, the, the floor is now yours, as, as Sophie has, has positioned a rather beguiling and, and dare I say, it, absolutely irresistible picture here. Tina wants to live in Convict. I right. want to have my Christmas as Convict. <laughs> Essentially, that would be my indulgence for the year. Convict Christmas is one I can happily sign up to. You're navigating us out of the tinsel and the plastic, Sophie. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a polypropylene free zone. <laughs> and I think that is one of the lovely things. And it it's there's a wonderful essay in the back about mistletoe um, and it goes back thousands of years, these traditions, to going into the forests and relating to these different um, sort of elements of the natural world at this time of year. So I think even though there is a lot of Christmas in this issue, it also just reflects on humanity and the kind of how we're drawn to, to kind of celebrate um, and come together at this time of year. So we've got a few sort of intellectual kind of morsels there with our essay section. And then, you know, just also this wonderful idea of sparkle and jewellery that kind of isn't really about if there's fine jewellery but it is also there is something very interesting about how personal and how sort of um well I suppose sculptural and intuitive our relationship to kind of these sparkly objects is um and fine jewels of course but also the idea of collecting and handing on and gift giving is is something very interesting that we explore in the issue. Tina you wanted to talk about jewellery as well a little bit earlier the fact that you don't want that that nowadays the, the we're all going very personal when it comes to jewellery again. Well, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that I highlighted, and of course it's, you know, very much relates to my own idea, and it's about how vintage jewellery and also vintage cut stones, right, the old mine-cut diamonds, so they're not as brilliant and they're not as sparkly, but they have a wonderful warmth and kind of roughness to them, um, how they're back. Now, to me, they never left. If you see what I have on, I have all vintage jewellery, and I have, a, I have a jeweler in Florence, a couple who's a gemologist, and they have vintage finds and it is the delight and the quirkiness um, and the the kind of one-off nature um, I do love stones and, and craftsmanship and so it's wonderful to hear Sophie talk about how they feature because they're often dismissed as being frivolous and yet I think our fascination with these beautiful things and and handmade things is so profound. I find it quite um, frustrating sometimes, though, Sophie, that when then you know my mother has a collection of the most beautiful Edwardian and Victorian jewellery, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous pieces, but do not seem fashionable. And it seems a, a, a shame sometimes that you can't just celebrate something for for in its in, you know, in it, as an entity in itself. I know, and it's it is. I mean, I think jewellery is very much about the senses. Um, there's an amazing piece um, on a, a sculptor and jewellery um, designer called Anna Cowie, who's Brazilian New Yorker. She is talking about, you know, how 
her pieces connect with the body. She's talking about really women and how they're buying pieces for emotional reasons. It's not about kind of projecting wealth or projecting anything. It's about their narrative with themselves, how it makes them feel. And I think the idea that something is, you know, in vogue or not is kind of relevant to a lot of the relationship that people have with with gems, with jewels. And and, and as you say, it, it kind of transcends um, something that might be, you know, how it's set. It's really what it means to you. Letika, you wanted to dive in. I love this topic because around this time last year, I was in Zurich and I finally landed upon what I had been looking for all my life and didn't realise until I saw it, which is I have always wanted a watch to look like a bracelet. And I found this beautiful, beautiful platinum diamond uh, wind-up watch. Because it's wind-up, the watch face is tiny and I have very small wrists. So the idea of going to Tiffany's or buying an awful Rolex that kind of dominates your entire arm is an anathema to me and my style. And this watch face is literally about one centimetre maybe by two. It's tiny, but you can still see the time and it's wind up and it still works. How old is it? Uh, well, it's Art Deco. Mm. And whoever wore this bracelet must have had it, I think, as a young girl because it's got a tiny little extension on it. And the diamonds are absolutely exquisite. Um, they're nicer than any of my platinum jewellery I've had from Tiffany's. And it was only 2,000 euros. Now, I know that's a lot of money, so I'm not being, um, you know, first world problem here. But for me, that was an absolute bargain. Because does, does it work, though? Because yes, it, I, yes. lo- I love vintage watches. And <laughs> yes, then yes. When someone told me it's like having a vintage car, I thought, I'm fine winding it. And then I realized, no, it only starts and stops and no, starts no, it and does. stops. Although I made the mistake of wearing it into a sauna and it hasn't worked since. So Obviously. I'm going to have to get it repaired. But... The final point on this is that I wear and love this watch so much and every time I wear it, it gets beautiful comments. I always think about the woman who wore it before me. And it's a really Mm -hmm. interesting concept because I'm actually not a huge secondhand person. It's taking a lot for me to get into circular economy the way I really know I should. But with this particular piece, I think about the woman. I think about what time she lived in. I think about who gave this to her. I think about what she did for her days. And it's this wonderful connection with this woman I have never known, probably will never ever find out anything more about But I absolutely love the transfer that's involved with this piece. And I hope one day that that transfers to another woman with a tiny wrist um, who gets (laughs) as much joy out of this beautiful watch as I do. And isn't it funny that just one little thing like that can bring you so much constant happiness? And the tone in Latika's voice, Sophie, when we've just heard her (laughs) talk with pure joy about something which she has, you know, craved for such a long time and then she finds that she lands on that I think Latika's on a journey. (laughs) We're all going off with it. I mean, it suddenly made me realise, Sophie, I don't actually have a piece of modern jewellery. I I wear my father's watch and my mother's ring. And I've got my wedding ring, but that's, you know, hopefully no one's had a go at that one before and no one's going to have a go again. But there's that sense that once you've made that emotional connection with your with your jewellery, there is that sense of permanent contentment. Like, I have enough now. I don't need any more because I have what I need emotionally. I think so. I mean, I would say, also, I'd direct you to page 38, Confect, because <laughs> you have a whole story. More than enough. Br- bringing on, us back to... On, the, the, um, on, on hidden watches. And they're the most exquisite um, hidden watches. The Ludo is a, is, um, a Van Cleef and Arpels. It's a new watch. 
And actually, it's I think it's an archive revival. But it's so interesting that you um, are fascinated by them too, Letitia, because they are really back in vogue. And I think it's interesting to explore why they existed in the first place, because I think that the time, the timekeeping was seen as too functional for to adorn a woman's uh, wrist. So they they sort of you know these hidden watches um, became very popular in the Art Deco era. But they're back again. And as we've got it's such a beautiful clutch of them that you can, <laughs> you know, go over. Lutika, <laughs> this is not it. Basically, Sophie has told you that, that what you bought in Zurich last year is not enough and you will be craving <laughs> new things. And, and, you will. And that's, I can't tell you. Yeah. I, I, I liked your description of permanent contentment. I think that's exactly what I feel. Does everybody that's know, funny. though, I'm sure, Sophie, that you know, that women, it, it was a huge faux pas. The idea that women needed to keep the time at all it was a fairly new phenomenon. And so the watch you're describing would have been a, a cocktail watch and worn in the evening. And the first women's watches didn't come up about until the 1920s. Before that, Victorian women had a, a watch fob, uh, something that they would pin on them, and, and nurses kept the time. I've actually got a small collection of this kind of ephemera um, and I have one of the first ladies watches was a Rolex watch that looked like a telephone dial um, I have one but it doesn't work hence my question to Datika about hers the idea that there was not so long ago in other words a, a, a world where women didn't need to know what time it was um, I find extraordinary so I mean it's so fascinating <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> After you, Emma. No, I was like, Sophie, your take on that, please, as, as Monocle on Sunday has suddenly become jewellery corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think jewellery also does to reflect the times and, and it is incredibly sort of a cultural and a social entity as well. So I think that's very interesting um, to reflect on. And we have kind of looked at that in the issue even these moments of history where you see suddenly you know decadence and um, projecting you know a sense of kind of splendor in jewelry and then something more discreet and hidden and it it does mirror what's happening in in society so i think jewelry as a kind of theme is something we need to dip back into certainly and i think you probably will find yourself with your horology <laughs> <laughs> and your secret little collection there coming back into the pages at some point, Tina, because it's too interesting to leave here. Thank you so much, Sophie Grove, editor of Confect. And the latest edition of Confect is on newsstands now. And if you are listening to that and you don't know what to buy your loved one for Christmas, listen back again as a podcast and take notes, because as you can see, we all rather like jewellery. <laughs> um, <laughs> and stories. And stories. Um, let's go back to stories and the news. What's everybody else spotted here on, on Monocle on Sunday? Sort of major gear change here. Populism. But, right, OK, because yeah. we've seen an enormous thing happen in, in the Netherlands this week, which has spooked everybody. I think we need to be prepared for this and to understand what the message is. Um, I mean, if there is a single message. Gert Wilders... Uh, the, the Freedom Party in the Netherlands having come away as the largest party in Parliament. Of course, I think everybody's got to grips with the idea that next year is going to be the biggest election year in human history. Four billion people going to the polls. 
Um, what should we expect? It's the first election cycle since the pandemic, since the cost of living crisis, since the war in Ukraine uh, and the wars in the Middle East. How will these trends be reflected? And I think there are a couple of big takeaways, and this is very much talking my book. I've written about something that I call Vox Populi Risk, the first kind of wave being Arab Spring and, of course, Trump, Brexit and everything else. The second wave, or the most recent wave, as with in the Netherlands and elsewhere, seems to be pulling together not just anti-immigration sentiment, which is what the, the papers, the newspapers pick up on, but also a kind of a backlash to green policies. This is a real vote-getter. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, the kind of neoliberal urban types, I just got through saying how I don't have a car, um, the Gilets jaunes movement in France was about a, a proposed petrol tax. The unpopularity of replacing gas boilers is an election issue. Um, in the United States, it kind of, you know, the government wants to take your wood-fired pizza oven um, you know, we can we can laugh, but um, broadly in, in public opinion, people are supportive of environmental policies, except when it comes down to changing the way that they need to live, whether that's electric vehicles, um, you know, or the gas boilers. And this is something that populists are very good at preying on, isn't it? Seeing the, the if you vote for them that will be taken away from you, such as your jobs or your right to drive a massive car. The, the, the fact is that if you can play on people's fears, you can get votes. I'm very interested to see this debate taking shape across Europe because to me it feels like Europe is about a 15-year lag. Um, we debated all these things in Australia and have come out of it with very until the election of the last government, restrictive climate policies. We've also come out with one of the harshest responses to asylum seeker uh, boat arrivals, I think, in the world. And Australia was very much criticised by the international community for doing that. It was also punished by many countries for what they saw as a complete violation of its international human rights obligations, which is the case. Nevertheless, those measures worked and they also won enormous public support. There is now no debate in Australia about whether you should accept somebody who arrives by a boat. It's about whether they should be turned back how and what sort of deprivations of uh, permanent Australian citizenship or residency they should be, how you can meet that out, meter that out. So Europe, to me, is really catching up on all of these arguments that we've had. And I think on climate, it's not as quite as difficult for governments who want to transition to green energy as it is for immigration. I think immigration is a problem no one has solutions to, and you certainly can't apply Australian solutions to them in Europe. It is seen, however, as a... The, the practicalities of immigration are, are very different from the perception of the way that it is treated. I think there was a there was a report earlier on last week where people were at, in the United Kingdom were actually asked whether they wanted more or less immigration. We have a height. The immigration has reached a height, but it's now non-European immigration. So, for example, the the biggest number of of immigrants coming from Nigeria, and without that, the the care sector would collapse. So, to me, it speaks to the the contradictions in public opinion as well. And but the bright spot for me and what Latika is saying, you know if there is one about this debate, is that the more that immigration and, and other kind of hot-button so-called culture war issues can be moved to a point where they become 
proper policy issues and to be dealt with in a systematic way is is hopeful. There is that gap, though, because this, this, sur- this survey last week was asking British people, OK, do you want more or less immigration? And the overwhelming thing was we want less immigration. But when they started to break it down as to say, what kind of immigration do you want and do you not want? They said, do you want fewer nurses to come? No, 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 we want more nurses. Do you want fewer care workers to come? No, 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 we want more care workers to come because we want the, the United Kingdom to, to do well and to prosper. The one sector of life that people wanted fewer of was bankers. and that suggested that actually immigration is seen as a bad thing where they they sort of blend whether the issue of illegal and legal migration is blended into a single threat or actually when you look at it there is a general feeling that actually if a bright helpful person comes to the united kingdom to help us get on with our lives more efficiently and, and pays taxes good, to the exchequer by the way because we are net beneficiaries uh, from i mean i'm a i'm a I'm an immigrant. <laughs> and, do- and doesn't take our jobs and doesn't take our homes and doesn't take our health care, then actually, it's fine. I think that's entirely too rational for this debate, um, <laughs> I think. And, and, you know, but, I mean, it's very easy for us, and I'm an immigrant to this country as well, you know, and I do feel uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric around this because, and I've actually said this to some conservative friends of mine, who are you talking about when you say this? Because I'm an immigrant. Are you saying you don't want me to come to your country? Because if you are, say it to my face now and, and what that means. And they always say, no, 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 you're highly skilled, you're highly paid, you're, you're a good sort of immigrant that we want. And then you dig down and really what they're talking about is culture and from the countries people come from. And I do think this debate does have to be understood from that perspective too because it's as much about the pace of somebody's community changing around them uh, as it is uh, the religions that are practised. And I don't think that, for example, the marches in central London from pro uh, Palestinian, but also that you, it's got to be said, there's been a lot of pro Hamas supporters in those marches. I don't think things like that do this debate any favours. And that is happening right across the West. And so I think this is going to be an explosive issue in next year's elections across our countries. And as, as we've seen, Her- Wilder's um, rhetoric in the last few decades has been, in certain cases, outright racist. Yep. So is what Latika is talking about, Tina, that that dreadful moment when the word immigration is actually supplanting something darker something something darker and also a proxy for change and and the Tika referenced this i mean there is a phenomenon that i you know I, I invented this term i'm a political scientist by training which is stop the world i want to get off and immigration and the pace of immigration and there's actually a lot of academic literature about the rate of 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 that um influences people's sense of continuity and stability. Uh, and it's again, it's something that right-wing populists can exploit and manipulate. I think we have to look at these things more closely. So both the green policies and the notion of having to give up things um, and our you know discomfort with, with cultural change or however we want to describe it may feed into this phenomenon. And the idea that more of the same is somehow not acceptable when it feels like the world is spinning out of control. Latika, unfortunately, we've got 10 seconds left. So I would say childcare 
and housing policies and infrastructure policies could go a long way to alleviating some of the concerns on this. Thank you very much indeed for that. That's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Uh, a big thanks to all my guests, Tina Fordham, Latika Book, Sophie Grove and Tyler Brule. Producers were Desiree Bandley and Mariella Bevan. Mariella was also our studio manager. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week from the Dufourstrasse 90 market. But then, until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>